welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. Good morning, church. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew, the Savior King and His Kingdom. This morning is going to be a little different than what we're used to, but that's okay. Different is not always wrong, right? Sometimes it is, but not always. We're going to pray, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to be still and listen to what the Word of God has to say to us today. Heavenly Father, we come, and we come humbly before you, and we recognize, Lord, that as, as, as humans, we often get into uh, routines, and uh, we develop habits and rituals, and, and, and while there is, there is good that comes from those things, they sometimes, uh, when, when those things get, get, you know, messed with, it throws us off. And so I pray now, Lord, as we do something a little bit different this morning, that, Lord, that, um, that your people would be still and they would hear clearly what it is that you want to say to them, Lord, that their hearts would be open to your spirit and to the things that you want to do this morning. And so we thank you for this time and we pray for your blessing over it in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time, Jesus had finished the Sermon on the Mount and then he did three healings, three specific healings, and, and, and there's a lot to learn about how God heals in that. And then he does, he has a, then after that, he heals a whole bunch of people, though he doesn't really, we don't get any details of it. And then he has a couple of brief conversations um, after a crowd gathers and Jesus decides to go over to the other side of the lake. He's headed down. He has a couple of conversations. They get into the boat, start heading to the other side. Jesus falls asleep. And while Jesus is asleep, this great storm comes up. And the storm comes and, and it, you know, the, the disciples or the guys on the boat, they're freaking out. And they come to Jesus. They say, hey, oh, oh no, we're going to die. And Jesus challenges them and questions why they're afraid and then questions them about their faith. And then with a word, Jesus calms the storm from storm so bad that they all thought they were going to die to flat calm in a moment. Now, we can't even imagine what that would be like. The disciples first were freaked out by the storm. Then they're freaked out about what they just saw. And they say in verse 27, So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who is this guy? In their minds, the storm came from or was a result of God, somehow God influencing the environment around them. And if it was going to stop, it was going to be God that was going to stop it. Well, this guy stands up, speaks to the storm, and it stops. Who is this guy? The disciples are still growing in their knowledge of who Jesus is. And we'll eventually get to some text where, where the disciples are challenged about who Jesus is, and they give the right answer. But right now, they don't have the right answer. But in our next text, we come across a couple of guys who do have the right answer. And so we'll pick that up here, starting in verse 28. When he had come to the other side in the country, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Now, the Gergesenes can also, you might be translated as uh, Gadarenes in some translations or in the same area. In the ancient world, the demons 
We're often given um, responsibility for all the bad things that happened in the world. If a bad thing happened, there must have been a demon doing it or attached to it or something like that. And that's still prevalent. We still see that in the world today. We still see that sometimes in the church. People still you know, believe that. Every bad thing is somehow a demon or the devil or, or that sort of a thing. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not the case. Sometimes bad things just happen. You know, we're living in a fallen world, a broken world, disease and sickness and injury. You know, if I stub my toe or hit my hammer, hit my thumb with a hammer, that's not the devil. That's my clumsiness. And so, you know, we can't blame all bad things on the devil. Yeah, the idea of demon possession is one that we, as, as modern Westerners, we, we, most of us have probably never experienced it. Um, I have, not personally, but I've been around it when it happened. And it's a terrifying thing. And it still happens today. You go to some parts of the world, third, especially the third world, where the gospel isn't as, as well known. Uh, some of these places where a lot of worshiping of false gods is going on, you'll see a, you'll see a fair amount of it. <clears throat> and it's terrifying. Um, the ancient world had a whole series of beliefs around it. The Egyptians, for example, believed that the, the human body was comprised of 36 parts. Don't ask me to explain it, I don't know. There's 36 parts. And that each one of them, or all of them, or any part of them, could be possessed by demons. So this part of your body could be possessed by demons if you're having a, you know, an issue with your ears. You know, it's the demon of the ear is, is doing that to you. They had this whole weird belief system. And there are some today who challenge the idea that demons even exist. And that, and if they do exist, they're, they're not really doing anything. I'm telling you, there's some places you can go in the world. Actually, there's some places you can go in the, in the United States and see it happen. Any place you see a ton of, of drug use and that sort of thing, get in those sorts of environment, you'll find demon possession in those areas. A lot of things that we call mental health issues, I mean, mental, mental illness is real. There are real issues. But some of that is, is demonic. Some of it is people have allowed certain things in their lives to the point where they've opened themselves up to that. But that's not what this sermon is about, so we're not going to spend a ton of time on it. What we need to understand is the Bible teaches the reality of demons. Demons are real. <coughs> and nothing suggests that they're not active, that they're not present, that they're not busy in the world today. Nothing in the Bible gives us any sense of that. The only and best defense against demon possession is Jesus Christ. That once you, be, once you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes in and fills you, takes up residence within you. How much of him? All of him. How much of your life is filled with him? All of it. Oh, the Holy Spirit will not share one of his people with a demon. He's not going to share a house with a demon. So as believers, we never have to be afraid of demon possession. It cannot happen to us. It is impossible. Doesn't mean that we don't give them opportunities to mess with us. You play around with certain kinds of sin, I promise you, you're opening yourself up to some sort of, some demonic influences. The things that we watch, the things that we, that we participate in, those are, some of those things are dangerous and we need to stay away from them. Drug use, pornography, um, some of the enter, air quote entertainment that's out there, it, it, it exposes us to things that are just they're wrong. They're demonic, and we need to stay away from it. So once somebody gives their life to Christ, then demon possession is no longer something we need to concern ourselves. And so we're protected from that. And so, so, so we're not to live in fear of demon possession. Don't have to worry about that. It can't happen to you if you're, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 4 says, You are of God, little children, have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You have God, the Holy Spirit, in you. You don't have to worry about that. You know, Paul warns us, though, that there are things going on in the, in the world that we can't see and that there is a spiritual element to it that we have to be aware of. In Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There, the reality, there is a spiritual realm that is, you know, it's there all around us that we may not have, most of us don't have a, a, an intimate knowledge of or connection to. Some people have a greater awareness of the spiritual things, and, and, but most people don't. We don't have an awareness of it. We see some of the influence of it, but we're not really aware of the spiritual. Some people get, you know, visions of this stuff, and I, I don't, you know, I, I'm pretty much black and white, and red, and and so that's pretty much where you know I get I get my understanding of these things, and so and so what we understand it's there it's real. The Bible says very clearly there's a spiritual realm and there's a spiritual realm of God and there's a spiritual realm of evil, and we need to recognize that they are running they are in continuous and constant conflict with one another. Not to say that you know the world the spiritual world of evil is stronger than the spiritual evil world of good. It's not. God wins. God is always the strongest, but the reality, it is there. This reality that there is a spiritual realm, and we need to recognize that there are still demons in the world, and they are still doing stuff, and we do need to aware of that. And if we allow, um, they, we may give them opportunity to oppress us or to, uh, you know, you know we, we can bring them into our lives through some of the things that we allow in our lives. And really the best offense against demons is to follow Jesus as close as you possible can. Then you don't have to worry about it. They may still come, but you're still, if you're following Jesus, he's going to protect you. He's going to guide you. He's going to keep you. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to be afraid. Just like the, just like the disciples in the boat. The storm's there. That, Jesus, what? Dude, what is your problem? Okay, maybe he didn't say dude. Why are you, why are you, why are you fretting about this? Demons are not the point of this text. That's not the point. Verse 29. And suddenly they cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus? You, Son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? The disciples don't know who Jesus is, not who he really is. They know there's something special about him. They know there's something different about him, but they don't know who he really is. But these demons do. They know exactly who he is. They know that he is God in the flesh. They know that he was with God from the beginning, just like we, we read in John 1. They know that he has the power to judge them. He has the authority to judge them. They know more about Jesus than any human ever will. And I'll tell you, it's one of, the, one of the things that just kind of weirds me out about this whole conversation about demons and the devil. They know Jesus. They know God. They know everything there is. They know everything that the Bible says. And they believe it. They believe it as absolute truth. And yet there's no repentance. And they are lost. And they know that. They refer to Jesus as Son of God. It's one of the two titles we see throughout the, the New Testament speaking of Jesus, either the Son of Man, which is the one he typically used for himself, or Son of God. This is the second time in the Gospel of Matthew we've seen that term used. Anybody remember who, was, who used it the first time? The devil used it. Yes, you're, you're, you're going to the Old Testament. I'm, I'm, saying, I'm, still, I'm just in the New Testament. You're right, you're right. Daniel used it too. When, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness... The devil said, hey, in Matthew 4, 3, I'll go ahead and just read it. I was going to paraphrase it, but let's just read it. Now when the tempter came, the devil came to him, Jesus, he said, if you are the son of God, or could it be translated, since you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. This is after Jesus had fasted for 40 days on the verge of starvation. The devil said, hey, 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 just turn these stones. If you're, if you're who you say you are, if you're who everybody, you know, who I know you are, just turn these stones. And it was a temptation to get him to, to, you know, to not trust God the way that he should. Jesus knew what was going on. And he knew that, and, the, and these demons know, know that this is Jesus and that, that he has a plan in this world. And part of that plan is to deal with them. 
And they say, you know, are, are you here? Are you here to, you know, to torment us before the time? The, what is the time? The time is when they know they are going to face a judgment. They will face a judgment. They know that. And they know nothing in, nothing in the universe is going to change that. You know, the question is, what is the day they're referring to? And the most likely answer to that question is there's going to be a day in the future when the demons stand before God and are judged. You know, they are, their, their judgment is given to them and they're dealt with. And it's probably going to be when Satan is judged at the end of the millennium. If you have any questions on that, see Lionel. He can tell you all about it. I don't know why I picked you, Lionel, but I know you can answer the question, so. In Mark and Luke, we have, there are three Gospels that they refer to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the Synoptic Gospels, um, they they often cover the same accounts, the same events, Though they all, they all view them from a slightly different perspective, and, and some of them include details that others don't. And that's, that's the case here in this one. In Mark and Luke's account of this, of this conversation, um, Jesus asks the name of the demon, and the demon responds that, Legion, for we are many. Now, that's an interesting thing. It's, he's saying that this man who's, ref, who's answering the question um, that there are many demons inside of him. Like, I think it would be pretty terrifying to have one inside of you. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly how many there are, but a Roman legion would be between five and 6,000 Roman soldiers. Wow. Now, that might explain why these men behaved the way that they did. They were crazy. They were fierce, the Bible says. Terrible, terrible men running around naked for whatever reason. I don't know what that means, but it's pretty weird. Verse 30, continuing. Now, a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Mark's gospel tells us there are about 2,000 pigs. And the demons begged Jesus to send them into the pigs. Now, there's things like this, like, I don't understand what that means. I don't understand what, what that would have done for the demons. I, it, obviously, it drove the pigs crazy, but I'm not sure what, what benefit it was to the demons. They, they beg him, you know, send us into these pigs, and those pigs go crazy, and they run down to the water, and they perish. And then, and then the, the keepers of the swine go back to the city, and they tell the townspeople what's going on, including what happened to the demon-possessed men, that they had been freed from demon possession. It's something that they were, a, they were a terror to their community. People couldn't go by that area because of these guys there in the tombs. The demons begged Jesus to send them into the pigs. The people begged Jesus to go away. There's probably a lot that could be said about that. It's possible that the townspeople believed that the swine running into the sea was a judgment from God and that they possibly were afraid that if Jesus hung around that they would experience judgment as well. One of the challenges of this account is the destruction of the pigs. No explanation is given as to why Jesus allowed this whole thing to happen the way that it did. It just did. They begged him. He said, go. Swine were an unclean animal to the Jews. Though in that particular area, it wasn't just Jews. There were Jews and Gentiles living in this area. 
the unclean animal to the Jews. And so, you know, by destroy, destroying the herd, maybe he was cleansing the land. But that, the, the whole, that whole explanation doesn't really line up with Jesus' character and behavior. It would be a significant financial loss to the owners of the swine, right? 2,000 pigs, that's probably a lot of money in those days. But again, that's not something Jesus would do because of that. And Mark's gospel says that when the people came out, they saw the demon-possessed man sitting clothed in his right mind. This guy that was a terror to the community around them is sitting there, and, and, and if they didn't, hadn't recognized him normally, he, they would, he would have just blended in with the rest of the group there. And he would eventually go back to his life. Townspeople had a choice. They could either be upset for the loss of the swine, the loss of the pigs, or they could rejoice that this man was freed. Now, we know what they chose. They chose to be upset. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The townspeople, all they can see is the financial loss. All they can see is what this is going to do to their life. They cannot, they cannot make that, that, that mental transaction that says that these pigs are, are, are insignificant. All 2,000 of them are insignificant compared to one man being set free from the bondage of these demons and the life, the horrifying the horrible life that he must have lived because of that, not to mention the, the impact of his life on the people around him. And they, and they just couldn't make that transaction. And, and we, there's so much wrapped up in that that we need to understand that, that the reality is that, that we must always put people first. People are, are just so much more important than anything else. They're more important than our reputation. They're more important than our, our livelihood. They're more important than our wealth. They're more important than anything else. It's all about people. Two thousand pigs was a small price to have a man delivered from possession of so many demons. But this text is not about demons. It's not about the pigs. It's not about the townspeople. It's not even about the man who was demon-possessed. That's not what it's about. This text is about Jesus. It's about Jesus and his power and authority over the things in the spiritual realm. He'd already proven his power over the natural world, all the healings that he did and the calming of the storm. There was nothing in the natural world that he couldn't control. And now he proves that there's nothing in the spiritual realm. That if he can deliver a man who's possessed by maybe thousands of demons, what in the spiritual realm can't he deal with? We know the answer to that, right? There's nothing, nothing that he can't deal with. The disciples asked the question, who is this man? And the deeper demons answered, he is the son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He was in all ways like one of us, always, just like one of us. And at the same time, he was in all ways like God his father. At the same time. A remarkable reality that is impossible for us to completely understand, at least not, not in our fleshly, carnal natures. We need to be conscious of the fact that demons are real. But we don't need to fear them. We shouldn't fear them. Our God is bigger than anything that this world has, anything in the material world, anything in the spiritual world. And if we're following Jesus, we're following the one who has power and authority over it all. Because we are his people, 
we can rest in his authority. We rest in his power. And when we sense all these, we sense the spiritual, we sense the material, we sense the carnal, we sense all those things, any of those things that might come against us, we say, hey, Jesus, you have the power. You have the authority. And I'm going to rest in you. And I'm waiting for you to tell me how you want me to do what my part is in all of this because he will give us a part to play, a part of faith, a step of faith in whatever comes our way, whether it be material or spiritual, there's something he wants us to do. It's comforting to know that Jesus is always there. He's always there no matter what darkness might try to come around us, no matter what things might happen. He is always there to protect us from the unseen spiritual realm and then to help us to walk through the material realm. And then in our next text, Jesus addresses our greatest need. If you're here today, you're watching online, this is our greatest need. Matthew 9, verse 1. So he got into the boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Mark includes some interesting details that, that make this whole account just more interesting to me, I guess. Mark 2, verses 3 and 4 says this, Then they came to him, carrying or bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. When they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, I, I've said this before. We've, we've, God gave you an imagination for a reason. Try to imagine this scene. As Jesus is there, he's teaching. They've got you know, a couple of scribes over here, and his disciples are around, and just townspeople, people standing at every window and the doorways. They're, they're hanging on every word. And then these guys try to get in, they can't. So they get up on the roof, and they start digging through. Well, it, you know, imagine that. You're sitting there, and all of a sudden, the roof is collapsing around you, you know, and, and, you know, you know, if you sit here, if you're here at this church, if you wait long enough, you're going to hear, you're going to hear a a plane sounding like it's going to land on the roof, you know, and so you're like, okay, okay, it kept going, you know, and so, and things start falling, and I I can just imagine Jesus just like, you know, seeing this, starting to see this happening, I say, okay, well, let's just, let's just hold on for a second, and all of a sudden, bring this guy down, drop him down, And Jesus sees their faith, their faith, not just the faith of the paralytic, but the faith of those four men that brought him too. And then he says to him, your sins are forgiven you. It's been said, man's greatest, or excuse me, man's deepest need is forgiveness. Forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. Oh, if we can understand that. That the reality that the greatest thing that God has ever done in the world is to make a way for us to be forgiven of our sins so that we could resume the role that we were created for, to be in intimate communion fellowship with Almighty God. That's what we were created for. And sin separates us from that. Our greatest need is to have our sin taken away so that we can resume that communion and fellowship and intimacy with God that we were created for. And until that happens, nothing else matters in our lives. Your greatest need is forgiveness. This man came to Jesus because he had a need, right? What was his need? He was paralyzed. Doesn't tell us why. Doesn't tell us how. He was just paralyzed. And in those days, that was a bad deal because you you don't, you know, there was no welfare. There was no Medicare. There was no whatever, you know, whatever to take care of you. you. You trusted in the generosity of your family and friends and neighbors. He had a need. He had a need to be healed. And who was he coming to? Jesus. Why? Because he healed people. How many? A lot. 
of people. He hasn't done it yet in the text, but there's going to be a point where he even heals the dead. It was a great need in this man's life, but it wasn't his greatest need. Jesus could see that he had faith, and so Jesus went right straight to his greatest need. There are some who witnessed this who disapproved. Verse 3. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Now, now we give the scribes a hard time, and, and usually, rightly, you know, they were, they were religious hypocrites. They were uber legalistic. They were typically, like I said, I think I said it last time, that you know, the harshest things that Jesus said to anyone in the Gospels was to the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes, they're well educated in the law of Moses. They were experts in the law of Moses. Some, some refer to them as lawyers. And in their mind, forgiveness comes from God by sacrifice made in accordance to the law of Moses, made to the priests at the temple. There was a whole religious system that, would, that God had given to the Jews and said, this is how you will atone for your sins. And in the mind of a Jew, the only way you could be forgiven was to go to the temple to bring a sacrifice, give that sacrifice to the priest, and have that sacrifice sacrificed on your behalf in your place. That's what the sacrifice was. They were. That animal was taking your place it died so that you didn't have to die for your sins. So Jesus said, eh, I got this. You don't have to go to the temple. You don't have to take a sacrifice. I will forgive you. To the scribes, this is, Jesus is claiming to have the authority of God. You know, people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. He just did right now. When he said, your sins are forgiven, he's saying, I am God and I forgive you. The scribes don't take kindly to that. Verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? They accused Jesus of evil. And, and, and we can understand really from a, from a perspective because that's what they knew. They knew there was a right way to be right with God. And Jesus just said something different. And Jesus tells them, oh, no, no, I'm not doing evil. You are thinking evil. Now, it would have been right for them to question him, to say, uh, hold on a minute. This is what we have been taught. This is what the law says. This is what, you know, the, the, you know, what God told Moses and how we're supposed to deal with sin. And you're saying something different. Can you help us to understand that, right? That would have been a good approach, right? That's not what they're doing. They're thinking, uh, this man's blaspheming. Anybody got any stones that we can, you know, deal with this guy with? They're in a house, probably not a lot of stones lying around, I, I guess. It's good to question why we do or don't do certain things in the church, right? I, I, know, I know we typically don't do that, but it's good to do that. It's good to examine. We, we as, a, as a board, as a, as a group of elders in the church, we, we do that. We'll, we'll ask questions about, okay, we, we've been doing this. Well, well, why do we do that? We're reminding ourselves that, that we do this and we do this for a reason, not just because it's our ritual or because it's our, our thing. We have a reason for doing it. I don't, know if you, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible does not tell us how to organize a church service. Did you know that? You cannot go to chapter and verse and say, this is the order of service for a church in 2023. For example, why do we sing songs at the beginning of the service? Why do we do that? Every, every week, we sing five songs. Five. How many? Five. How many, how many, how many will we do next week? Five. We do five. Why? It's not biblical. 
it's tradition. We do it because that's what we do. It's not unbiblical. It's good. It's helpful. It's useful. How many of you noticed that we didn't do worship this morning? Anybody notice? A couple people. Good. You're paying attention. Good. Before you come to me after the service and complain. Examine your heart. It would be hypocritical to complain that we did not do praise and worship this morning if you don't participate by singing when we do have worship. As Christ followers, worship, praise, and worship is commanded us in the scriptures. We're commanded to do it. And that's one of the reasons why we do it. We do it because it is commanded that we praise and worship God. So we, we organize it within the church. That that's the reason why we do it. It's not, it's not ritual. It's not tradition. We do it as, a, as an expression of obedience to God to lead you into worship. But worship is not about watching David and the team sing songs. That's not worship. Worship is the body of Christ following the leaders as they are doing their best to enter into the Holy of Holies in heaven. They're doing their very best to get into the very presence of God in worship, and they want you to follow them in. As we, as we, as we recognize what they're doing, they're not here to entertain us. They're not here to wow us. They're not here to make us feel good. They're not here to impress us. They are here to enter into the presence of God, and once they've done that, they're saying, come with us. How do you do that? You do that by joining them. Oh, I can't sing, Pastor. Well, who gave you your voice? God did. God gave you the voice that you have. Well, it's not good. Well, that's not my problem. Talk to God about that. You know, people around me, you know, don't worry about that. I want to enter into the presence of God. And one of the ways the Bible tells me I do that is when I, I and I, I talked to David about this, my desire for me in worship is that he would enter into that place of spirit-led worship so that I can abandon myself in praise and worship of God. One of the reasons I always sit in front is so that I can't watch you. Because I'm a shepherd. I, I, I want you to enter into the presence of God. And, if I, and I, I, I sit up here because I need to worship God. I need to do that. I need to get in that place of absolute abandon to God so that I'm ready to do what I do here. I sit up here because if you're not engaging, it breaks my heart. And I can't watch that if I'm trying to get there myself. Now, I don't mean this as a rebuke. I do challenge you. If you want to experience more of God, you've got to let yourself go. Stop caring about what other people think, what other people might do. Just Praise your God. He is so worthy. How much of your praise is he worthy of? All of it. I don't know the words. We put them up on the screens. <laughs> you know why we do that, right? We don't do that so you can read along. Right? Does that make sense? We do that so you can join us. Hey, and I'm with you there. Some of these songs that David plays, I don't, I don't know the words to them. So what do I do? I sing along. I, I read them and sing them as he's playing. I get as close to the presence of God as I possibly can because I know I need to get into God's presence so that I am more able to communicate the message that God has for you.
I do that when I get there. And personally, I believe if you want to get more out of what God is saying through his messenger, you need to get there too. It's important. Worship, the praise and worship, what we do here before the service is the body of Christ gathering together, following the worship team into the presence of God with their heart, mind, and voice. And personally, I don't believe you can be engaged in worship if you're not singing. You can watch, but if you're not really engaged, I think if we start to get in, this is just one thing, because we can talk about prayer, we can talk, there's a lot of things, tops we can talk about, but worship gets to be the one today. Worship in this church, you know, I wish worship was better. You know how to make worship better? Start singing. You know why? Because these people need it. They need you to join them as they're entering in. Because it does something. There's something powerful. There's something spiritual that happens when, when these people who are leading you look out here and see you following. Right? Does that make sense? I don't know if you ever led somebody somewhere. If you're leading them somewhere, if you've got any grandchildren around, I've got grandchildren, and you're doing something, and you're, do, and you're saying, hey, come with me, and you turn around, and like, where are you? They need you to be there, as it helps them. It helps them to, to enter in even further into God's presence. Now, and Larry here, I mean, would you agree that seeing the congregation worshiping, it, it instills that, that sense of, of connection? I mean, the same thing as me as a pastor. I'm, you know, I'm looking around. If I see people that look like they're engaging, that, that ministers to my soul. You know, if you're nodding off, you know, okay, I understand. Sometimes the best sleep you'll ever get all week is in my sermons. I get that. <laughs> But, when, but when, when people are engaged and they're connecting and the Spirit of God is telling me that they're connecting, that does something. There's a connection. I get that connection too. I, I sense it and God uses that to help me. And I believe that a church that will abandon itself in worship will know the smile of God, both on an individual basis and on a church-wide basis. So Jesus is dealing with an issue here. The greatest need that we have, that this man has, is forgiveness. That's the greatest need that we all have. And not just forgiveness for salvation. We need everyday forgiveness too. The stuff that we go through, you know, maybe, maybe as I just, you know, you know, climb down off of my worship soapbox and you're sitting there thinking like, okay, man, I think he was talking right to me. You know, God might say, you know what, you need to repent of that. Okay, good, do it. <laughs> That's a good thing. He gave you, he gives us forgiveness for that very purpose. And we recognize, you know, something, you know, God, I'm not, I, I haven't given all of that part of my life to you. He says, good, I'm glad that you figured it out. Let's get it right now. These scribes, they're letting their religion get in the way of the needs of others. And, you know, and, and you know, this is a good church. I'm so thankful that you guys let me hang out here. You know, that, you know, that, you know, nobody's going to, you're, you're not going to fire me because we didn't do worship this morning. Right? Okay. I only, got, I only have two board members here, so there's not a quorum. So, okay, I'm, I'm good. We've got to be so careful that we don't get caught up in, in religious, you know, hypocrisy and, and these sorts of things where it's got to be a certain way or I'm out of here. You know, you know, I can't go to this church because all the rows are relatively even. You know, I think we should have four chairs on this side and six chairs on this side. I'm not coming back to this church until I get it right. And, and, and 
and trust me, sometimes the things that people, churches get split over are as silly as that. I've never heard of that one. I just made it up. But we have to be very careful. Verse 5. Which is easier? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, arise, take your bed, and go to your house. Jesus says, so that you, scribes, religious people, know that I have the power, and the word power there is the word, um, the Greek word exousia, and it has the idea of authority, the power of authority. I have the authority to forgive sins, which the scribes know that rests in God alone. Another place where he's saying, I am, in fact, God in the flesh. And he's saying to them, just so you know that I have that authority, he turns to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go home. Now, up until that point, the people, if they wanted atonement for sins, they want covering of sins, they had to take a sacrifice of some kind. That is just what, that what is described in the law of Moses. They had to take it to the temple in Jerusalem, have that sacrifice, sacrifice killed on their behalf, and then they will then be covered for their sin. Jesus is giving us a preview of something. He's giving us a preview of what he's about to do. In a couple of years after this text, he will go to Jerusalem where he'll be killed on the cross. Now the cross, he became our mediator. Our mediator, the mediator for God, for sinners, for me, for you, for all. Hebrews 9.15, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of, re of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who, are called, those who are called may receive the promise of eternal Inheritance. Just going to break that down really quick. He, Christ, is the mediator. Mediator is one who stands between two. Stands between, in this context, standing between holy, righteous God and sinful man. Jesus stands between the two, mediating, meaning he's bringing an agreement between the two so that there can be equity, so that there can be, so that there can be community within the two to bring, to bring balance to it. He came, he did that, and he did it, you know, based on the new covenant, Jesus said, which is in my body and in my blood, by means of death. What death? Death of the cross, where he died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. He lived a perfect life, sinless, and when he died, his, his death was sufficient to forgive every human on earth for the redemption of the transgressions, for the, for the payment of the cost of your sins. The payment was death. That's what your sins cost. You know, the, it was symbolized in the law of Moses where he had to bring this, this innocent sacrifice to the priests to be killed on your behalf so that we may receive the promise of the internal inheritance so that we might know heaven, eternity with God in heaven through Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the law on the cross. He eliminated the need for the temple and the priesthood. And we know wasn't long after Jesus died on the cross. It was 30 some odd years after that, the Romans came in and, and leveled Jerusalem, including the temple. And they haven't had a temple since. They don't need one. They have the temple now, who is Jesus. There's no longer a need to bring a sacrifice to atone for your sins. Why? Because Jesus is our sacrifice. For which of our sins? All of them. He's the perfect sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. Not just now, but for all time. One sacrifice sufficient to wash away the sins of every human who has lived since he rose from the dead. Wow, that's a lot. And all that is needed to appropriate that forgiveness is faith. You have to believe. 
believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe that, you are forgiven for all, once and for all. Believe that Jesus forgives the sins you continue to commit, right? We have no perfect people here. We don't allow them in. We don't allow any perfect people to come. <laughs> we, have a, we have a perfect people detector at the door. It never goes off. Believe that Jesus forgives those sins that you commit, you still commit. The sins of doubt, the sins of fear, the sins of worry, the sins of anger, the sins of, of bitterness and resentment, the, the physical carnal sins, whatever they might be, Jesus forgives those sins if we repent. And those sins are washed away. Believe that Jesus alone is the way to atone for our sins. There are people, there's organizations, there's whole church organizations that say, no, here, here's how you do it. And they'll give you a process that you do to be forgiven of your sins. Nope. There is no process. There's only belief in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can, that can make a way for us to be forgiven. Believe that every sin, no matter how small or how great, can be forgiven by Jesus. No matter how great, no matter how small, can be forgiven and must be forgiven. If you want to have intimacy with God, your sins must be cleansed. And the Bible says that you do that through repentance. And I, you've heard me say this before. I believe repentance is the greatest gift that God gave to the church. The fact that he gave us a way so that we can be right with him is remarkable to me. Because he didn't have to do that. The paralytic man is a picture of us all. Sin paralyzes us spiritually. It keeps us from living the abundant life. If you can imagine in the first century a paralyzed man and what he was incapable of doing. He, could, he probably couldn't do any significant work. Uh, he obviously couldn't get around very well. I mean, he was very limited in his life. Sin does the same thing to us. Sin limits. Sin paralyzes. Sin cripples us from being all that God would have us to be. It denies us the spiritual life, the abundant life that Jesus promised us in John 10.10. 10. It robs us of the good God wants for us. You know, God wants good for you, right? If you're, if you're one of his children, he wants to give you good gifts. Why? Because he's a good God. He's a good father, and he loves to give good gifts. Sin robs us of that. Sin wrecks relationships, destroys families, and causes nations to fall into ruin. And we see that all around us. All around us. Forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. Through Christ, God made a way for us to be healed of what sin has broken. And then we can be like this paralyzed man, verse 7. And he arose and departed to his house. Now, it's not, it's not obvious, but one of the things that we can see here is while God, Jesus, did this remarkable work in him, the man's response was obedience. And the same thing would be true for us. If God heals us of something, if he heals us of sin and the brokenness of sin, what does he want us to do? go back to that sin? Uh, no. He wants obedience. Healing comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now this man knew a freedom that, now we don't know how long he'd been paralyzed, but at some point, you know, he, he, he may have, it may have happened to him later in life, may have happened from birth, who knows when it happened, but he now knows a freedom that he either hasn't known for a long time or maybe never known. We are created to be free. John 8, 36, If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And when, when we are free, when we are living free, because that's the key, 
is that when we're delivered from sin or anything else, you know, healing of any kind, and then we, and then we are freed from whatever bondage or, or, or handicap or whatever, it, whatever spiritual or material or carnal thing that God frees us from, and we're now free and we walk in that freedom, we walk in the freedom that Jesus won for us, something else happens. Verse 8, now when the multitude saw it, the miracle of the healing, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. We can go off on, on who that power was given to. It wasn't given to men. Jesus is the power. He is the source of that power. But they marveled and glorified God. That's the key. When we, when we are faithful to God and we walk in faith and obedience and we walk in the freedom that he gives us, the world around us notices that. They see it and they will marvel at it and they may glorify God because of it. Nothing glorifies God like his children walking in the freedom that he gives us. I started by saying this message would be a little bit different. David had to go away to attend his uh, uncle's memorial service. And we reached out to everyone we knew who does worship. We, and we've got a fairly good list. And nobody was available this weekend. This is the first time in almost 19 years that we've had a, work, we've had a church service without, without praise and worship. Now, I pray it doesn't happen again until Jesus comes and takes us home. But when we are free through faith in Christ Jesus with all of our sins forgiven and we are walking in that freedom, we are free to accept whatever God puts before us. And I, I didn't share with a lot of people that we weren't doing worship this morning because I know, I know what, I know what people, I know what you think. How do you do church then? This is how we do it. Even, even a church service without worship. Like I said, I pray it never happened. David will be back next week. When he comes, you encourage him saying, we really, really, really missed you. But then, when he starts worshiping, I challenge you, church. I challenge you. Worship. Abandon yourself to worship. Here's my desire. I want you to force the sound team to turn the volume up on the worship team so they, you can, they can be heard over your voices. That would be good worship. And we just, just abandon ourselves. You know, there's somebody, one of the famous worship guys, I don't know who, and they, he wrote a song about this, the idea of having an audience of one. Who are you singing for? Who are you singing to? It ought to be to God and God alone. For all that he's done for us and all that he desires to do for us, just let it out and worship him. Amen? Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day, and I thank you for your people. And I pray, Lord God, that no one would feel condemned here today, and Lord, that you would, uh, you would take away any temptation or, or sense of need that they have to come and tell me why they don't sing. Lord God, uh, that's between them and you. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help them just to open their hearts up to what you would say to them right now, that they would not feel condemnation. But if there's conviction there, Lord, that you would, you would help them to process through it and recognize what you're calling them to. And that, Lord, um, Lord, I pray this doesn't drive people away. You know, if he's going to make me sing, I'm not, I'm not coming back. Lord, I, I pray, Lord, just take those kinds of thoughts out of our hearts. We want to worship you, God. You are so worthy of our praise and worship. That there's nothing else, that when we come to this time and this place, that we should have nothing else in our mind, nothing else but your, the, your worth. That's what worship is. We're, you know, it's, it's the declaration of what you are worth. And Lord God, you are worth everything to us. 
You have done so much for us. You sent your son to die for us. You give us every breath, every heartbeat as a gift from you. And we thank you for it. And I pray, Lord God, will we be quick to praise you and worship you because of it. And I pray, Lord, as we prepare to go out from this place, that, that I believe, Lord God, that you're calling us to, to live in an attitude of worship. That every moment, every time that our, our, our brain stops thinking about whatever it is that we're doing and it gets in that place of, 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 of being still, that, that our hearts, our minds, our thoughts would turn to you in worshiping you and praising you and thanking you for all that you are and do in our lives. Lord, we, God, we do thank you for all that you are. And Lord, we know that there are, are, are spiritual forces out there that are, that are bad, evil. And I thank you, God, that we don't have to be afraid of them. That you have called us to walk in great boldness and fearlessness because we have God in us. And not only God in us, but God with us and God for us. And if God is for us, there is nothing that can stand against us. And we praise you for that and thank you for it. And Lord, if there's anyone here or anyone watching online and, and they don't actually have a relationship with you and, 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 and really understand what that means, is that it, it means that they have, they have acknowledged the fact that they, they need to be saved from their sins, that they can't save themselves. No one can. No one ever has. That only you can save us from our sins. Only you can forgive us of our sins. Only you can make us right with God. And so I pray, Lord God, if there's anyone here who has not opened their heart to receive you as their Lord and Savior, that they would recognize right now that your spirit would be right now instilling within their hearts that sense of that need that they have, the greatest need that they will ever have in this life is to have a right relationship with you. And that any other relationship, any other thing that they might cling to and desire and want and, and, and feel that they need will, has to come second to that. Because without that, without forgiveness of their sins, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And so I pray if anyone is here and they need to know that they are forgiven, that they would confess their need right now that they would confess the reality, the absolute fact, the absolute truth that Jesus, you died for our sins. You died for my sins. You died for their sins. And that by dying, that, that death that we deserved, you took the penalty that we deserve. And if we will just believe that, then Lord God, we are forgiven. And we have the hope of heaven. And so I pray, if there's anyone here who needs to do that, they'll do it right this very second. They'll just say in their heart, Jesus, I know, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've sinned. I know that I've done things that, that are wrong. The very fact that I have not received you as my Savior is sin. And I confess that to you right now. And I ask, Lord God, that you'd forgive me. I accept your sacrifice on my behalf. Help me to live that life that you called me to, that you, you died so that I could have, so that I might walk in the freedom that you died to give me. Lord God, we thank you so much for this day. I thank you, Lord God, that you helped us to, uh, to do this different kind of a service today. And we do lift up David and the family, and Lord, they're going through a very difficult thing right now. And I pray, Lord, for uh, David... Um, and his whole family, you know, his brothers, his sisters, uh, parents, and his uncle's family, Lord God, they're all, they're all going through a very difficult time. And so I pray, Lord God, that you'd minister to them the comfort that they need. And I lift anyone here who's here and, and, and struggling with something, whether it be physical or emotional or spiritual or whatever it might be, Lord God, that you would help them to see you in the storm and that they would put their trust fully in you. And that, Lord, that you would show them favor where favor is needed, grace where grace is needed, mercy where mercy is needed, hope where hope is needed, love where love is needed, that you would give them what they need 
right now. I praise you, Lord, for all that you are and what you're doing, and we lift this day up to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you all. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.